You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. We gotta live on science alone. Welcome to Unbiased Science, where we bring scientific method to the madness. We're your hosts, Dr. Jessica Steyer. And Dr. Andrea Love. So last week, we talked about GMOs, also known as genetically modified organisms. Um, We did a a summary of what that term actually means in terms of when an organism is actually genetically modified. Um, We talked a little bit about the history of genetic modification, including more ancient methods such as selective breeding, crossbreeding, hybridization, um, as well as mutagenesis, where... um, agricultural folk would expose seeds to radiation or chemicals to create mutants. Um, We also did a little history of genetics. Hello, Gregor Mendel. And we also (laughs) talked about the timeline of the development of our more modern FDA-approved transgenic products. Um, So we talked about the very first GMO that was approved by the FDA, which is actually human insulin um, that's produced by a bacterium called E. coli. And we talked about the series of progressions and development in the in the course of GMO technology. We also provided a summary of many of the benefits that offer um, consumers when you're um, looking at GMO products. That includes things that have longer shelf lives or they produce their own natural insecticides so that we can reduce crop spraying um, or offer products that include additional nutrients, um, such as the golden rice example that we discussed. Um, We touched very briefly on some of the controversy, um, but then since there's so much material to talk about Mm -hmm. with regard to that, uh, we decided to save that for this week's episode. And this week, we're going to focus on the misconceptions and some myths associated with GMOs, uh, particularly with regard to the food industry and the label GMO. And Andrea, I know um, that really grinds your gears, and we're going to talk about that. Um, But first, do you know what today is, Andrea? What is today? <laughs> this is our 10th episode of the pod. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm so excited. I'm so proud of us. Um, and I'm sure that our listeners uh, have heard our new podcast song. Um, we hope that you are enjoying it. We're obsessed with it. Uh, we went back and forth for such a long time, you know, debating how to intro and outro. We sent around some, some theme songs. And special thanks to Andrea's partner, Josh, uh, who's clearly more of a music buff than we are, who suggested that we use Scientist by the Dandy Warhols. Um, We're absolutely obsessed with it. It's way better than the porno music. That's what people so lovingly called it uh, that we've been using previously. Um, So, yeah, thank you so much, Josh. Uh, It took us a really long time to get through all the, you know, red tape, even fill out all the necessary paperwork. But we have it and it's ours and we love it so much. I'm so excited about it. And I want to say that for the last couple of months while we were waiting on all this, I just walk around the house, you know, singing it in my head and just waiting for the day we can actually have it 
on the pod. (laughs) And I wonder if people picked up, you know, we were kind of dropping some subtle hints in some of our Instagram stories. I don't know if you noticed, you know, we were putting that as the the song in the backdrop because we were dying to have it. And now we have it. Um, One more thing. I wanted to give a shout out while we're giving shout outs to Montana Mullins, who's the administrative queen behind Unbiased uh, Unbiased Science. Wow, I forgot our podcast name for a second. She is basically, she's our editor, producer. She's everything. Um, She helps edit out uh, some mistakes that we make, like when I uh, accidentally referred to Africa as a country instead of a continent. (laughs) So thank you. Thank you, Josh. Thank you, Montana. You guys rock. Yeah, Montana, you're a superstar. (laughs) She really is. Oh, my gosh. Um, Okay, so let's dive into the conversation. Andrew, do you want to kick things off? Sure. Um, So today, you know, we really wanted to do uh, a more focused approach on some of the controversy and misconceptions around GMOs and the word GMO. Um, And and even though these are extremely regulated products and very limited in number, which we're going to obviously go into, GMOs are still some of the most widely misunderstood and polarizing items available today. Um, Even though we now have over three and a half decades of data since the, the launch of the very very first GMO product. Um, That was 1982, human insulin. Um, Even though we have over 30 years of data attesting to the safety and benefits of GMO technology, the anti-genetically modified organism storm has really intensified. Mm -hmm. Um, Andrea, do you know that I'd say that that episode, our episode last week on GMOs was one of our most listened to episodes. And and as you could see by some of the the comments we've received, uh, as you said, it's definitely very polarizing. Um, it's interesting. There was a, a peer-reviewed paper published in the Journal of Human, uh, excuse me, Nature Human Behavior back in January of 2019 um, that basically found that people who most intensely oppose genetically modified food think they know a lot about food science, but actually know the least. Um, as, as we know, and as we'll talk about, GMOs are widely considered safe by scientists, uh, but opponents have said that they want more science on the potential harm um, so that subjective ar- arguments aren't part of the equation. So just really briefly, this peer-reviewed paper, they, uh, they conducted a survey. It was conducted by four universities. They asked 2,000 people in Europe and the U.S. how much they knew about genetically modified food, what their opinion was and how intense it was. Uh, and then they uh, then it went on to ask a series of true or false questions about science, ranging from basic issues like whether the core of the earth is hot or cold to questions on genetics, like just, does a non-genetically modified tomato have genes? And the results showed that the more strongly people reported being opposed to GMOs, the lower their test score. So consumers unfortunately, are are less likely to learn the facts when it's something that they feel very passionate about, um, especially if they feel like it's challenging their their moral values. So one last thing I'll reference, and then I know we're we're going to dive into into these myths and misconceptions. Uh, Andrew, you actually sent me a link to this fantastic Washington Post article from 2018. Uh, It's called, Are You Anti-GMO? Then You're Anti-Science Too. And I highly recommend this article. Um, I'm just going to... 
quote it just for for one second, just pull out a piece that I thought was interesting. So just as scientists were becoming more confident in the safety of GMOs, global anti-GMO activists led by Greenpeace were making the issue a hot potato and that they're making a joke there, uh, including a genetically modified insect resistant potato cultivated in Canada Uh, on the strengths of myths and deception, supermarket chains, food companies, and eventually governments were governments were frightened into anti-GMO stances. Uh, In the developing world, anti-GMO activists spread rumors that GMO consumption resulted in things like homosexuality and infertility, which we know is very untrue. And we're going to debunk that and some other myths. So Andrew, did you want to jump into our first myth? You know, as as Jess, you made a great point that you know the less people know about something, the the more often they they have these misconceptions. And I think as is true for many of these sort of you know pseudoscience or or non science um, myths, you know something takes root because of an unsubstantiated rumor, and then ultimately it grows legs through the help of the media or whatnot, and. Um, And then it takes a very long time to ultimately debunk those misinformation pieces. So um, I think the first misconception that we really need to address is the fact that things that people consider non-GMO mean that the food itself has not been genetically modified. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) All right. Well, as Jess just alerted you to, that is wrong. Um, virtually all modern day crops have been genetically modified, even the ones that are labeled non-GMO. And we're going to get into labeling, particularly with regard to that organization, the non-GMO project, um, in a little bit. But um, GMO, as it does, it stands for genetically modified organism. That term in the commercial labeling is extremely misleading. It refers to only one of the many genetic genetic modification techniques that we use. And that one technique is transgenesis. So as we talked about last week on the pod, um, a transgene is basically transferring a gene from one species to another to convey that advantageous characteristic. So in the case of the human insulin, that was the human insulin gene was transferred to the E. coli bacteria. So now the bacteria can produce that protein. There are a lot of other ways to genetically modify things. So mutants, um, and that could be through the process of mutagenesis, as we talked about exposing seeds to radiation or chemicals, um, or things like hybridization or selective breeding. Um, And an example of mutagenesis is that star ruby grapefruit that we talked about last week. Those are all technically genetically modified, but they're listed as non-GMO or they don't need the label GMO. Um, The other thing I think that's really important to mention is that GMOs, as we term it, transgenes, um, things that have been exchanged from one species to another, these occur naturally in the world. This is very true in the case of microorganisms, so so bacteria and viruses. Um, If anybody recalls our influenza episode, influenza viruses are technically GMOs. They freely exchange pieces of their genetic material with other viruses and become a new version of influenza, Um, but also in other species aside from them. There was a study um, in 2019 in plant molecular biology, and they identified that 39 plant species 
qualify as a naturally occurring GMO. And what that means is they actually contain genes from a bacteria. So these are plants. They have a gene from a bacteria called agrobacterium, which coincidentally is the same type of bacterium that we actually use as a common DNA shuttle to create um, GM crops. It's a very similar technology to what we described for E. coli and the production of human insulin. These natural GMOs include crops such as bananas, peanuts, cherries, hops, cranberries, and even tea. Um, so crops created via all of these different techniques, these include um, naturally occurring GMOs. These can be created with human intervention to create new species of plants. So all of those aren't considered GMO. They're classified as non-GMO, even though they're technically GMO. Um, the issue becomes with this intervention that Jess was talking about in a minute ago with commercial organizations and regulatory agencies because of pressure from consumers and other unrelated organizations that don't have a, a full understanding of the science. So the FDA and other organizations have narrowed that term GMO, which again, I hate that term, and it's technically incorrect, um, to only include a plant, animal, or microorganism whose genetic makeup has been modified in a laboratory using either genetic engineering or transgenic technology. I know, this is such a pet peeve of ours, Andrea. <laughs> I know that. Um, I feel like uh, Peter Griffin and Family Guy, you know, this really grinds my gears. We could do a whole segment on on this. I, you know, it's, it's so true, though, that... Uh, these companies slap a non-GMO label on things, they upcharge, and it's not even accurate, as you just described. So it's really just a marketing tactic, and we're hoping that we're arming you guys with the facts to know better to not pay more for something that is probably genetically modified in some way, just because it has a non-GMO label. Yep, absolutely. So... The next myth that we're going to debunk is genetic engineering is a new technology. <laughs> it doesn't get old. No, it doesn't get no, old. It doesn't get old. Okay, I'll keep doing it. So um, our boy Gregor Mendel would beg to differ uh, that genetic engineering is a new technology, and, and so would my domesticated dogs and cats. Uh, genetic modification of species has been occurring for thousands of years. We talked about this in our last episode. There are, and you just touched upon it just now, you know, there are many processes that could alter the genes of an organism. Uh, and you just, just touched on them briefly, mutagenesis, selective breeding, hybridization. These not only change the genes of the organism, but also have far-reaching effects beyond just a single gene. Uh, of course, as scientific technology has evolved, we've developed new, faster, and more efficient methods of creating genetically modified organ organisms uh, you know, in labs. Even today, the older methods of creating GMOs are being replaced with newer technologies. Uh, Andrea, I don't know if you had anything to add there or if we should move on to our next myth, which we heard from the herd quite a bit. Yeah, um, let's do that. I feel like, you know, if you want to learn a little more about the history of genetic engineering, tune into last week. So heard from the herd, uh, Andrea, I'm going to let you uh, debunk this one. But All right. There's a myth that consuming GMO food can change your DNA uh, and cause cancer. Yes, this is so untrue. So 
everything contains genes. Okay. I know Jess taught, touched on that, that survey where some people didn't realize that a, a non-GMO tomato didn't also have genes. Um, so does eating a regular banana change your DNA or cause cancer? No. That's the same as eating a GMO banana. Genes are simply sequences of DNA, and DNA is made up of four molecules. We call these bases, and they the abbreviations are A, T, C, and G. And these sequences of DNA are present in all organisms. The order and arrangement of those A, T, C, and G bases determine ultimately what produce what protein is produced from that sequence, ultimately that gene sequence. There's nothing inherently fishy about a fish gene or human about a human gene. And in fact, many of the DNA sequences we we have in our bodies are shared or what we call conserved with other species. That's how we know evolution exists, because we can see how similar our DNA is to a non-human primate or so on and so forth. Um, and, and when you eat a banana, you're eating all the banana cells. Every cell includes DNA. When you eat those, our digestive system breaks down those pieces of DNA into those subunit bases, the A, T, C, and G, and those have no effect on our own genes or cells. We break them down. We digest them. We are literally always eating genes anytime we consume something. And whether it's GMO or branded as GMO or not, has no bearing on its its effect on our body. So do you want to hear something crazy? Um, Always. <laughs> back when I got married, uh, people, of course, immediately started asking me when we were going to start having babies. And I had multiple people tell me that I should avoid GMOs because they cause infertility. Um, I, so I just want to just take a second to debunk that. There is so much research out there that debunks this. Um, there's also a systematic review uh, of published literature. They reviewed uh, over a thousand peer-reviewed articles. Uh, it was conducted to determine uh, whether genetically modified plants have a potential impact on infertility indices. Uh, so this systematic review was based on uh, of online literature, and they came up with the conclusion that GM crops do not cause infertility. Um, uh, their main conclusion, again, was that GM products had no adverse effects in infertility indices. So we have to stop perpetuating that rumor. I think that that's just so terrible. Yeah. Um, and Jess, mm -hmm. I think, I think, you know, infertility is obviously just one of the many, you know, incorrect, you know, health issues associated with GMOs. And I think, you know, last week we did a really great summary on the fact that there's been, again, decades of research that have shown that there is no link to any medical conditions um, by consuming GMO products. So there's another myth that GMOs present no health benefits on, on the flip side of the coin. Uh, so in 2012, the World Health Organization reported more than 250 million preschool children were affected by vitamin A deficiencies due to their rice-based diets. Uh, Andrea, we touched on this last week, uh, but GMO rice modified to contain additional beta carotene, vitamin A, um, was developed to provide these populations with the nutrition they need. How incredible is this? Yeah, you know, it's this, amazing. 
This innovation called golden rice has been credited with saving more than 2 million lives on an annual basis. And if we waited for nature to naturally modify uh, vitamin A deficient rice plants versus genetically modifying these plants in an expedited laboratory setting, millions of, of, of children would have died. Yeah. And I think just that really underscores the fact that, you know, many people have a very narrow scope of the world. And, you know, just because in an industrialized nation or, you know, a more developed nation, you know, we have access to, you know, nutritious food on a regular basis. You know, we often forget that there are developing nations or other countries that have um, subsistence-based diets or, um, you know, predominantly non-nutritive diets like a rice-based diet. And, you know, offering these options is really, really um, incredible to those types of communities. Um, and I think something else that that maybe goes along with that is, you know, there's a lot of villainization of GMOs and and it's somewhat of an elitist uh, perspective, because as we know, things that are labeled as non GMO, there's a there's a price tag increase to those. And it and it somewhat creates this hierarchy in consumers where people who, you know, aren't wealthy enough or affluent enough to afford these you know, erroneously branded um, non-GMO products are, you know, treating their children more poorly because they're not providing them these, you know, perceived better products when in fact, none of that is actually the case. That is such an important point. Um, the other thing that I know really grinds our gears um, is that GMOs are not adequately tested and studied. Um, I know that buzzer. <laughs> I know. Where's that buzzer here? I'm getting it. I'm getting it. Wait, wait, wait. Here we go. There you go. You're right. That one definitely, definitely warranted the buzzer because this really might be one of the biggest myths out there. Um, GMOs are actually much more regulated than their non-GMO counterparts. Uh, it takes an average of $130 million and 13 years to bring a new GMO to market. Uh, and this involves a comprehensive safety and environmental review by regulatory bodies all around the world. Uh, in addition to the review process conducted in the U.S. by the Department of Agriculture, the Environmental Protection Agency, and the Food and Drug Administration, other nations conduct their own rigorous certification processes and regulatory approvals. So currently more than 40 agencies and 67 countries certify genetically modified pro products for cultivation, importation, and other field trials and testing. Uh, unlike new varieties of crops uh, produced by other methods of genetic modification, GMOs on the market today are tested for food safety, uh, including for allergenicity, digestibility, and toxicity. On average, more than 75 different tests are performed to ensure that GMOs are safe for people, animals, and the environment. Uh, the safety of the end product is what matters for the consumer, not the process used to get to that end product. Um, so just wanted to throw in here that so many scientific organizations and industry groups agree that 
fear-mongering that runs through discussions of GMO foods is more emotional than factual. Because the, the science is, is really quite clear that GMOs are safe. Um, the American Association for the Ad Advancement of Science, AAAS, made a statement in 2012. Uh, the World Health Organization, the American Med Medical Association, the U.S. National Academy of Sciences, the British Royal Society, and Every other respected organization that has examined the evidence has come to the same conclusion. Consuming foods containing ingredients derived from genetically modified crops is no riskier than consuming the same foods containing ingredients from crop plants modified by conventional plant improvement techniques. Yeah, it's a great point, Jess. Um, you know, I think, I think, you know, certainly very few people probably consider, you know, how much a, a branded non-GMO product has been tested, um, whereas they tend to be very concerned with how many tests are run on the, the GMO products. Mm -hmm. um, I think something else that's really important to mention is that a lot of people, you know, I think we've we've addressed this a couple of times, but a lot of people um, are under the assumption that GMO foods contain poisonous or toxic substance. Um, and so... An example I think that comes up really frequently is a crop called BT corn. And BT stands for uh, a bacteria called Bacillus thuringiensis. And um, that's just the abbreviation for the, the bacteria. But this corn includes a gene from this bacteria. Um, and this, this, this gene actually produces a series of proteins that are natural insecticides. And we call these cry proteins. Um, and, and what happens in this BT corn is now that it has this gene from this bacteria, it produces these cry proteins. Um, and the European corn borer, the corn rootworm, and the corn earworm, which are harmful pests to corn, will eat these corn. They'll ingest these proteins that are normally produced by that bacteria, and those proteins will kill the worms. Um, this is this is really remarkable because these pests are um, significant um, crop destroyers for the corn industry. These proteins are extremely specific to these species and pose absolutely no harm to humans or other animals. There have been numerous studies that have investigated this particular series of proteins and demonstrated this to be the case. More than that, the ability of the plant to now produce its own insecticide means that these crops don't need to be sprayed with chemicals to kill these corn worm pests. So, um, wow. Thank you, Andrea. Um, do you think we should move on to talking about labeling now? I know that's yes, very I, important. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. 
But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. I feel very strongly about labeling and the lack of labeling or mislabeling. So let's get into it. Okay, I'll I'll kick things off and then you you can uh, take over. How does that sound? Sure. Okay. So right now, uh, there's a myth uh, that every food at the grocery store is GMO unless it has a non-GMO label. That is false. I don't have my buzzer handy, but yep. false. Right. I know. <laughs> you know, I also wish we had Dwight from the office saying <laughs> false and then following up with fact, you know, and then laying <laughs> some truth on us. Um, there are only 10 transgenic GMO crops on the market in the U.S. Um, it, it's worth noting that the non-GMO label is a voluntary label that companies pay for. Again, as we said, this is a marketing tactic. Uh, if a a product does not have the non-GMO label, it does not mean that it contains ingredients from GMO sources. Um, varieties of the following 10 GMO crops are approved in the U.S. Apples, potatoes, field corn, sweet corn, canola, alfalfa, soybeans, rainbow papaya, cotton, sugar, pe- sugar beet, and summer squash. Oh, look, Dwight would even be so happy that beets got <laughs> mentioned. <laughs> um, one addition, did you want to talk about the adi- the recent addition, Andrea? Yeah, sure. So um, in 2015, they the FDA recently approved the first animal, and this is the Aqua Advantage salmon. Um, this is the salmon we talked about in the last episode, which has a, a growth hormone in it, so it actually can grow year-round, which ensures that when you're um, sustainably farm-raising salmon, you can actually yield larger fish for um, supply. Um, And I think something important to mention, Jess just listed those 10 crops. So that means anything branded as non-GMO or GMO in the categories of wheat, tomatoes, or popcorn are absolutely false. And I know we mentioned Flavor Saver in the last episode. It was the first produce produce GMO. That was the tomato. That product no longer exists. So we don't have to worry about that. Um, The other thing to mention, I think, is that these non-GMO labels, as Jess said, they're voluntary. They're not mandatory. Companies are paying for this branding. Um, They pay for this certification in order to be able to place that label on a food package. What that also means is that Since it's all voluntary and there's no regulation to it, those labels can be put on products that don't even have a GMO counterpart. So you might see a non-GMO label on a bag of popcorn when there's no GMO popcorn anywhere in the United States. And something that really grinds my gears (laughs) is that we often see non-GMO labels on something that isn't even an organism like table salt. So table salt is an inorganic compound. It is not even organic to begin with. It is not animal. It is not organism. That 
isn't even a possibility. You and get so, so mad about this. I love it. <laughs> I, really, <laughs> I really do because I feel like these companies essentially are preying on the consumer right. to turn a profit. Um, now, there is a little bit of regulation with regard to, to genetically engineered products in the U.S., and this is, is very recent. So mm-hmm. Congress passed the National Bioengineered Food Disclosure Statement, or standard, in 2016. It went into effect in 2020, and it's going to require all food companies comply by the beginning of 2022. Now, again, as we mentioned, there's a lot of genetically modified things out there that are not created in a lab setting using trans genes. But this law requires labeling only on bioengineered foods intended for consumption that contain more than 5% GMO ingredients. And there's a lot of exceptions. So instances where they don't need to be labeled are um, foods that are derived from animals such as eggs, meat, meat, and milk. So that would be like your your AquaVantage salmon. Um, It doesn't need to be included with refined ingredients like oils and sugars. Um, It doesn't need to be included in foods in restaurants or um, foods that are sold by small manufacturers. So anything local or any non-food products. Um, it doesn't include all the other genetically modified foods that are made using other methods like mutagenesis and hybridization. So ultimately, again, it's it's a lot of misnomers. It's a lot of fear mongering and it's and it's a lot of scientific inaccuracies. I, I just wanted to mention that um, states are free to impose their own labeling requirements Um uh, and I don't know if any have, I don't know if you happen to know, it, it seems that most jurisdictions are waiting for federal laws to, to be implemented uh, before working on new legislation. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. So the, the kind of big takeaway is these terms, GMO and GE. So GE is also, um, that stands for genetically engineered. So they, they use those somewhat interchangeably. Those terms you use in the food industry are completely arbitrary. They're used by marketing industries. It's not based on science. And ultimately, it tells the consumers nothing about the safety, the nutrition, or anything else about the food in question. Damn, Andrea, are you passionate about this topic? I'm I not might, sure. I might be. <laughs> I love it. As you should be. I am too. I mean, it it really is so frustrating. They're 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 preying on the consumer, as you said. So whenever we're talking about GMOs, we have to talk about another organization, uh, the non-GMO project. We have to make clear that this is not a governmental institution. Uh, Rather, it's an organization that decided to partner with a variety of food commercial organizations to sell their branding to those companies. Um, The non-GMO project routinely labels products that don't even have a GM counterpart, as Andrea described earlier, uh, or labels things that are genetically modified through selective breeding and hybridization. Even more shocking, they they have this claim. They state that there's no scientific consensus on the safety of GMOs. And this is just one of those things. I don't even know what to say about this. It's just <laughs> so blatantly false. Uh, as we've stated, there is 
an abundance of science that supports the safety of, of GMO foods. Um, so let's just reiterate here and now, GMO foods are safe. They have no link to any medical condition. Uh, more than that, many GMO foods are actually more nutritious than their conventional counterparts because uh, because the genetic modification adds a nutrient. Again, I think this is now like the fourth time we've re <laughs> referenced it, but golden rice um, with the vitamin A is actually healthier, of course, than uh, their uh, traditional counterpart. So much of the labeling and media attention around GM products, uh, in particular food, of course, is founded completely on misinformation and, and fear mongering. Uh, this is particularly true in the case of the non-GMO project organization. They share graphics like someone injecting something into a physical tomato to prey off of the lack of understanding of how these things are developed. Um, 3,000 brands have jumped aboard their bandwagon, unfortunately, uh, verifying over 50,000 products that represent more than $26 billion in annual sales. Wow, Jess. It's just... I know. It, 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 it breaks my heart a little bit because I feel like, you know, so many people just don't have the awareness of this and, and they're just kind of, you know, getting taken for, for a song. Right, right. All right, Andrea, keep us going. Do you want to talk about, uh, well, do you want to debunk the myth that GMOs are bad for the environment? Sure. So in reality, there are many environmental benefits actually associated with GMOs. Uh, in the last 20 years since the introduction of, of GMO-based agriculture, GMOs have actually reduced pesticide applications um, by 8.6% and also help increase crop yields by 22%. Um, we're able to reduce pesticide use because we now have genetically modified crops that have their own inherent insect resistance, such as the BT corn that I mentioned. Um, and we're also able to improve yield and reduce tilling of fields um, because now we have crops that are herbicide tolerant. So herbicides are chemicals that kill plants. Um, and these, these ultimately, the, the reduction of tilling actually benefits bee populations and pollinators. So we're improving populations of bees, which are critical pollinators, and we're also reducing spraying of other sorts of noxious chemicals. Um, GMOs also help contribute to sustainability and climate change solutions because, because of all of these environmental um, benefits, we can conserve biodiversity. So by reducing tilling and things like that on the land, we're able to save up to almost 60 million acres of land in 2018 alone. We also reduce carbon dioxide emissions by almost 51 billion pounds. And that's equivalent to taking 15.3 million cars off the road for an entire year. Holy cow. Um, so, so yeah, as you just said, herbicide-tolerant, genetically engineered crops enable farmers to actually till less often. Uh, so this has increased nutrient-rich organic matter up to 1,800 pounds per acre per year. Uh, in addition, GM traits can help farmers produce crops that are more resistant to extreme weather conditions, such as drought and extreme heat, and non-browning traits could allow for reduced food waste. Uh, GMOs can help to reduce food waste in developing countries where these losses can 
be as high as 40 to 50% for root crops, fruits, and vegetables, 30% for cereals and fish, and 20% for oil seeds. All right, Andrea, you, we have to go there. Um, you, you, okay, go there. Let's do All it. All right. All right. So while <laughs> we're talking about the agricultural industry, let's briefly talk about Monsanto. Monsanto is now Bayer. They were bought out in 2018. And, you know, a lot of the controversy is really just founded on, again, un- unsubstantiated claims. But let's let's do it. Bayer manufactures an herbicide called Roundup, and the the chemical in Roundup is called glyphosate. And this is the most widely used herbicide in the world. And as we just mentioned, an herbicide is a chemical that kills plants. Typically, it's used um, to help kill weeds so that you don't need to weed your crops or till the soil as frequently. So glyphosate by itself targets a particular protein that plants need in order to grow appropriately. Um, and as a result, it's a it, it's considered a broad spectrum herbicide. And again, as I mentioned, it's very useful in large scale agriculture because it can kill weeds and other plants that can choke the crops out. In addition, Bayer owns a series of genetically modified plants that they call Roundup Ready. And what that means is that those plants that are Roundup Ready are engineered to resist the herbicide, meaning when you have a field that has a variety of plants, the Roundup Ready plants will be treated with the Roundup, but they won't be killed like the weeds will. So the Roundup Ready plants are able to be planted by farmers who have purchased them. And um, and this enables them to harvest their crops more easily without having to till the fields as often. Farmers buy these seeds from Monsanto um, and other biotech companies because it it, it decreases their costs and it increases their profits. If it didn't benefit the farmers, they would not buy these seeds again. On top of that, glyphosate itself has received a lot of negative press. And, and I want to be clear here. Glyphosate is not something that's unique to Monsanto, now Bayer. It's a chemical that has broad spectrum herbicide function. Uh, Roundup is one brand of many of glyphosate. Um, And there's also a lot of misinformation about glyphosate, particularly that residues of it that end up in the food supply are toxic to humans. And that is false. While glyphosate is toxic to the weeds that compete with the crops sown across the United States, it is far less dangerous to humans and other animals. Plant cells are very, very different from human cells, including the genes and the proteins that they have. So the way things work on plants is not comparable to the way things work on humans. Um, And and there's been countless studies that have demonstrated the safety um, and the lack of health issues associated with small consumption of glyphosate. Um, I think it might be useful to kind of set the stage for how much of this we would actually need to consume, Jess. Do you want to present some data here? Sure, sure. So maybe we can start with a comparison. So the LD50 is the dose of a chemical necessary to kill 50% of test animals. Uh, It's routinely used, it's a routinely used measure of toxicity. So the LD50 of glyphosate is roughly 5,600 milligrams per kilogram of body weight. So that's 5.6 grams, which is a huge amount. Uh, Compared to other noxious chemicals like acetaminophen in your Tylenol, which has an LD50 of 1944 milligrams per kilogram, the caffeine in your coffee, which has an LD50 of 192 milligrams per kilogram, 
and the vitamin D in your multivitamin, which has an LD50 of 10 milligrams per per kilogram. Glyphosate is benign. So even if there were a long-term accumulation effect of trace amounts of glyphosate from your produce, the data have been crunched, and it would mean that even if you weren't washing your produce, that you'd have to eat 65 pounds of produce per day to even have a chance of reaching some sort of toxicity effect from glyphosate. All right, Jess. So I think we can sum it up that glyphosate and the Roundup controversy is founded on some unsubstantiated claims that glyphosate is harmful um, and some and and that, you know, using that um, chemical is is going to be detrimental to humans. Um, and I think obviously there's, there's some other questionable business practices, you know, in the Monsanto train of thought. Um, and I think one of the myths maybe we should address is that Monsanto again, now Bayer, um, sues farmers if, if their GMO seeds blow into their fields. Yes. So do you, do you want to go and start debunking or did you want me to jump into it? Um, I can. Sure. So for it. So this is false. This actually has never happened. So as I just mentioned, farmers can choose what sources of seeds they want to use. Um, Farmers often use the Bayer seeds um, because it decreases their cost and increases their profit due to the advantageous characteristics of of some of these plants. Um, So seed companies can sue individuals or farmers for knowingly using their seeds without a licensing agreement or for saving seeds despite signing an agreement that restricts the farmers from saving that and using it in a year. The myth that that Bayer has sued farmers who unknowingly have GMOs in their field was spread by a misrepresentation of, of a very famous um, uh, legal case. Um, it was a Canadian farmer named Percy, Percy Schmeiser, who had claimed that he was sued when when Roundup Ready canola plants were discovered on his farm. And he had claimed that these, these seeds had blown through the air and landed on his field and grew. Um, the conclusion of the legal case was that Schmeiser intentionally planted these Roundup Ready canola seeds without an agreement with Bayer. Um, the other thing to mention is that the the small print of these licensing agreements about saving seeds, most farmers don't actually save seeds um, because they don't breed true, and that's a- disadvantageous for their crops. So this isn't a new issue. It's not unique to GMO crops. Farmers choose what seeds they want to purchase and what seeds they want to use. And um, and if they want to save seeds, they can purchase seeds that don't have any sort of agreement. Additionally, in many public sector projects, such as the Hawaiian papaya, the um, insect-resistant eggplant in Bangladesh, and the water-efficient maize for Africa project, farmers are actually free to save and share those seeds um, that are from GMO crops. And there's no even royalties charged for sharing these across different organizations. So there's another myth regarding Monsanto um, that their seeds are sterile, meaning the plant will produce seeds, but those seeds will not grow. Uh, And this is false. Cue the buzzer. I don't have it handy. Uh, (laughs) This technology has been developed by Bayer, uh, but it has not been used in the agricultural sector. So anti-science activists use that term, terminator seeds, as a way to fear monger and villainize the agricultural industry. All right, Andrea. Oh, boy. Um, Moving on to our next myth here. 
that organics are safer than GMOs. And I know you and I both, uh, you know, th- this grinds our gears when these two terms are, are used so frequently in the same sentence because we're talking about two completely different things. And in a future episode, we will cover organics, organic food. What does it mean to be organic? Um For now, let's just clarify that organic farming is a cultivation method, whereas GMOs are a breeding method. So it's truly like comparing apples and oranges. Um, Additionally, organic growers are allowed to use certain types of pesticides, uh, some in very high qualities. So some GMOs could claim to be safer than organics, in fact. Uh, An example might be a GM blight-resistant potato, which does not need toxic substances like copper sulfate or other fungicides often used to control blight in organic farming. Ideally, genetic modification would be used to improve organic farming, but the two terms do not fit together, nor nor can we make comparisons between the two. And again, promise that we'll do a deep dive into organic on a future episode. We always get tons of questions about this. Yeah, for sure. Um, what do you think, Jess? Should we wrap it up? Wrap it up. All right. Take us home. So <laughs> the takeaway from today's episode is the term GMO or GE, as it's used in the food and agriculture industry, is extremely misleading. It only includes a tiny group of organisms that are genetically modified, and it excludes a broad swath of organisms and products that are actually genetically modified. Um, The labeling of these products in your grocery store is not thorough or comprehensive. Um, Many organizations that provide these labels for purchase have ulterior motives. The data demonstrates that GMOs are just as safe and healthy, if not more so, than their conventional counterparts. They can reduce the use of chemicals needed to treat plants um, during, um, during growing. They can also improve the yield and durability of crops. Um, genetic modification has been around for hundreds, if not thousands of years, and it's the reason that we have most of the food products that we have um, to this day. And as we mentioned, the method of genetic modification has changed over the years as science advances, um, but the principle is the same as even our ancient genetic modification technologies. Um, And I think it's worth reiterating, just because you hear something is genetically modified doesn't mean it's dangerous. Um, and, And I think as we said last week, In many instances, GMOs are enabling us to actually live greener and healthier lives um, in a more sustainable manner. And over 30 years of research demonstrably prove that GMOs are safe for humans and the environment. Anything you want to add, Jess? You said it so beautifully. We're obviously both super passionate about this. We could probably have dedicated, you know, even more episodes to this. Uh, but I, I, I hope that we drove home that point. And please don't fall victim to to marketing tactics, um, just not based in science. That's so. a great point. Yep. So thanks for joining us today. We hoped you learned a thing or two. And if you like our pod, please share with your friends and family and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. In our next episode, with the Thanksgiving holiday approaching, we are going to focus on COVID-19 pandemic updates. Uh, we'll also discuss public health considerations for the holiday and best practices to keep yourself and your loved ones safe. Catch you next time on the pod, your trusted source for no nonsense, just science. I am the science.